Hello and welcome to episode number 43 of the Mostly Relying Podcast. Today we are continuing the theme from last week where we talked about tooling on the Erlang side. Now we're going to talk about tooling on the Elixir side. And we are joined by the creator of Elixir, Jose Valim. Jose, did I pronounce your name approximately correctly? Yes, yes. Oh, good. And by author of Seven Languages in Seven Weeks and a bunch of other awesome books, Verse Tate. Greetings. So... Uh, before we get to our topic, I thought we'd, that we have a couple of announcements. There's some stuff coming up. Erlang Factory Light Beersheba has been canceled, unfortunately. Uh, we will sk- reschedule something for that in the fall, but uh, we don't know exactly when. Chicago Erlang will be coming up in October, or September, um, in Chicago, obviously, uh, in the 22nd, and I, I will be there. Codemesh in London will be in November. And the ICFP will be in Gothenburg, Sweden in September. Uh, any of you guys have anything else that should get announced? Other conferences, places you're speaking? Uh, no, no, nothing on top of my head. Okay. Bruce? Those are the main ones. Okay. So, for we have done a prior episode on Elixir, but for those who might not have heard it or might not be familiar with what Elixir is, Jose, could you give us the, the two-minute introduction to what is Elixir and why you decided to create it? Definitely. So, well, since this is an Elink podcast, I'm going to go straight to to the point. So Elixir is a link that runs on the Erlang Virtual Machine. So everything that you uh, really have access in the Erlang Virtual Machine is there for Elixir developers. But the really difference uh, with Elixir is that we have a strong focus on productivity, uh, productivity and tooling. I think that's why uh, we are here, uh, invited for this talk today. Correct. And yeah, so that would be the, that would be one of the the main features in Elixir. I think when we first talked about Elixir, we also talked about how Elixir promotes extensibility, be it, be it via protocols and polymorphism, or the extensible macro system. But that would be the main ones. Right. And it seems to be attracting quite an interesting following. And it seems like it's m- more drooling from like the Ruby community than the Erlang community, although not certainly not exclusively so. Yeah, uh, it's, I mean, it's not, so it's not clear from where people are coming yet. It's, it's funny because I ask that a lot, but it's hard to get data, right? So I can say like, certainly that I am attracting more people from this side or from this side. Uh, for example, we may have an impression that, you know, we have more like Ruby developers than other ones, but since my proximity to the Ruby community, that's common, but we also don't know, for example, the, the Ruby community is much bigger than the Erlang community, right? Yes. So I could as well have attracted just like same numbers, an example, like, 1% of the Ruby community, but 3% of the Erlang community, right? And then you never know. Uh, or other communities, you see a bunch of Clojure developers, developers that are interested in Clojure, and then they want to find other alternatives that are not running the in the Java virtual machine. And then they come, they find Elixir, they find it interesting. Some people from Python too, which is interesting. And I think those would be the main ones. Right. It, you know, it's a good thing. It's... Um... You know, as in your, you were in Dave's talk, you know, we want more people into the wider Erlang community, which I'm including 
uh, which I'm including, uh, which to my mind includes Elixir, LFE, a few other things. Uh, LFE is Lisp flavored Erlang, and we will have a podcast on that hopefully later in the summer, by the way, for anybody who happens to like Lisp or just is curious and other things. So I think that there's something else going on here. I think that basically we're at a at a critical juncture in in our industry. Um, you know, we've we've seen the you know the the paper the free lunch is over that Jose talked about this last weekend at ElixirConf. We've also seen more and more pressure on the objectorian languages to get threading right. It's really not the fact that languages are objectoriented that's the problem. It's the the over over reliance on mutable state that's the problem and it's really pervasive in in those programming styles and so we've seen pretty much everyone knows that the object oriented languages have to evolve drastically or that that we're probably looking at some major rewrites and i personally believe that this is the real y2k this is a um a silent problem with without a deadline that's going to be more and more prevalent. So that's driving users towards Elixir. There's also a couple of other communities that are interested in in not just Elixir, but other functional languages. There's the Clojure community. There's a set of people that can um, process Clojure and, and the prefix notation well. Um, I'm, I'm really not one of them. I've given it a shot a couple of times. I love the language. I love the abstractions. I like the mental model. I can't get my head around the syntax and you know that the macro side and that's also the um, you know, the prefix notation. That's those both are are um, pretty tough for me. But there's also languages like Erlang where you know the language has been around for a long time. But the um, the tooling for new users has not evolved with the state of the art. And I would put Erlang in, in that group. You may even put languages like Haskell in that group, where where people are looking for syntax um, and something less prolog-like. Maybe they're looking for um, for tooling that was more like what we had in, in, on you know the Ruby side or the Python side. You know those languages tended to do a pretty good job. Of rapid adoption, so I think that all those things are feeding the explosion that we're seeing right now. Yeah, I mean Erlang has some great tooling. Once you get over that initial hump, you get into sort of the more advanced stuff. But it's those initial how do, how do I get from maybe not Hello World, but just past Hello World type stuff. That's yeah, that that was uh, one of the comments that Dave and I we did uh, in the keynote is that the we use the activation energy right. uh, metaphor to say, you know, the amount of energy you need to to start a reaction. And for Erlang, it's very, very high because of many, many reasons, right? I mean, if you're considering people coming from OO, uh, as we're is saying, you know, there is the whole new uh, paradigm, right? If you like it or not, there is uh, the syntax. It's, it requires activation energy. And there is things like tooling, how they get started with a new project. And so there are a bunch of things, some that we can work and improve them, right? But some that they're not, which, for example, I gave uh, the syntax. That's why I said like it or not, right? You're not going to change the syntax, okay? So, you know, the, it's activation 
uh, energy that's, that will be there and will be required. But we need to reduce everything else that we can. Right? We need to anticipate common problems, have a bunch of material to get started and have a good tooling too. I want to be able to you know, install this thing on my machine and create a new project and have it open in my editor running with very few steps. I don't want to go through a bunch of steps because uh, even more if there are manual steps, right? Because the more manual steps, it's more likely that it's going to have a failure in the middle and the users are going to get frustrated and their energy is going to go to the wrong places. Right. No, it's like what you really want. I've actually been thinking about putting together, you know, like copious spare time like a vagrant box that does all that. So you just basically do, you know, vagrant up and you have a machine running Erlang and web machine and rebar and, or cowboy or whatever your favorite web server is. And, you know, with Postgres or MySQL and, you know, sort of all the sort of standard things you'd want to do for a basic web app that you just have to type vagrant up and then start editing code. It's not a complete solution, but it at least, for somebody who yeah. has two hours to check out this Erlang thing, it's you know probably a pretty good piece of the puzzle. Yeah, exactly. And for example, Erlang solutions, they are working on installers mm-hmm. for the biggest platforms. And those things are extremely important, right? Because, you know, if we tell user Previously, you would say, oh, you need to go to GitHub, right? And then you clone and then you compile the source or something like that. Right. If you have a way to just say, you know, just download this installer and run it or add this to your package manager, your to your Linux distro, whatever, and run it, and you're going to have it there and working, that's also a very good way to get started. Right. If you could just type, you know, app get or yum or brew, depending on if you're on Ubuntu, Fedora, or yeah. Mac, install uh and what the Haskell guys do is they have something called Haskell Package, which includes GHC the compiler, some of the, and then like sort of a predetermined set of common things. I don't remember exactly what's in it, which they release quarterly and it's curated separately from the compiler by different people. And, you know, you can just install the Haskell package and you have then everything you need to do basic Haskell development. Now, obviously, you may need to install a few specific packages to do one thing or yeah. another, but it at least gets you the basics. There's, there's something greater, though, I mean, I think that one of the things that was interesting to me was that Ruby didn't really explode until um, we had Ruby gems. And I think that gems might have been every bit as important as Rails because what happened was um, was then you create a, a a starter pack, not just for the known set of things that's going to let you build a web server, which, by the way, might not exist yet, it also gives you a starter pack for every combination of, of packages that you can use. So that package and dependency management is absolutely critical. Right. I mean, you know, the problem is also with Erlang, for example, and this is probably a problem with a lot of languages, there are at least four, four to six you know, packages for JSON encoding, decoding in, in Erlang that you can get for Erlang. You know, there's JSX and MochiJSON and Jiffy and a couple others. Maybe if you're doing high-performance stuff, it really matters. But if you're just starting out, I think having one pre-selected would be, okay, here's a JSON package, you know, would be good. Because, you know, if you're just trying to spend a couple hours learning, you just want something that's going to work. Yep. So how does Elixir solve some of these problems? Right. And just I just want to expand on that. And it's not even necessarily when, well, it's, just, it's not necessarily when I'm a, 
a beginner, right? That's in general when I'm starting a new application, right? It's too early to the point for me. It may be too early in that particular moment of my prototype of uh, for me to know exactly which one I want, right? Which exactly library I want because I, I'm not, it's not clear exactly what the trade-offs are. It may even that I just want to JSON. It's a very small part of my application. And that thing, whatever I choose, that is never really going to become a bottleneck. So, you know, you don't want to think a lot about it, right? You want to have your head focus on the, the important bits. And uh, one example related to the thing, and then I'll go to, to your question, that I find very, really interesting is when we are defining supervision trees, I heard they're changing in Erlang 18, the new one, you'll be able to provide a map and this map will have default values. And basically, when you're defining a supervision tree in Erlang, it asks you to set, for example, uh, what is the minimum restart time and the amount of restarts you can have in that time or something like that. Right, right. When I'm creating an application, I have no idea, right? I have no idea what I'm supposing to expect from that tree at that particular moment. I don't want to think about it, right? And then people today, there's kind of a known rule. Some people just say, just, you know, if you don't know what to do, just put three and 10, I think, or three and five is the usual recommendation, which is a number I think uh, OF um, provided. And, and it's exactly the same idea, right? I do whatever the Emacs template does, you know, until I need it different. Yeah, exactly, right? You want to have a default, so you... That's going to work reasonably, and then you can come back later to that point and uh, reevaluate it, right? So that's something that we do. We try to, to keep an eye open, you know, throughout the libraries and so on. Try to provide reasonable defaults. But when it comes to library, for example, JSON, right? We have right now we have a similar problem to Erlang because uh, we have I don't know four or five different JSON libraries at this point. And, and again, people come and then just say, well, I want to use a JSON and then, you know, which one should I use? They, it's not sure. So we are planning at least for the JSON part because it's such a common need uh, to have, we're not going to include in the language, but we want to have one in, Elixir, in the Alexir organization on GitHub and have uh, the maximum as we can have people using and depending on that one. So we at least have like, an answer that's going to work for, I don't know, 90% of the cases, right? And then people, they can just go and use. And if, we, if there's a project that needs JSON, they're going to be depending on exactly that project. And we hope that it will, it will help. In the past, it seemed such a approach seemed successful already. So for example, a couple, I don't know, a couple months ago, we had different people trying or with web libraries or web frameworks in Elixir, mm. and they all came with their abstraction on how to wrap around the web servers and so on. So we decided, okay, we're going to create this project called Plug, which is basically what uh, Rack is for Ruby or WSGI is for Python, which basically uh, we have, I think, Simple Bridge in Erlang or something like that. It's the same idea. Right. And, and it really worked because basically now all those libraries or, or frameworks, they use Plug and then they all depend on the same abstraction, which is really, really good. And then we hope to go in a similar path to JSON. Right. Probably like XML and, you know, or even like things like standard database drivers. You know, it's like four different MySQL drivers for Erlang. Right. And it's just like, I mean, maybe there's good reasons for that. I don't know, but it's just annoying. 
So that's actually unavoidable with a language as mature as Erlang. It's, um, you know, effective languages attract users and users write code. And there's invariably going to be some overlap. So that's not necessarily a bad problem for, for Erlang. That just means that there's there's been a vibrant community for a while, right? right, right. It's no, just I'm- that that the, the toolkit has to be able to reconcile some of the problems. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing that we have four to three different MySQL drivers or whatever it is. It's just sometimes you're like, you know, you, you just want to figure out which one to use and move on. Um, it's a it's a good problem, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's unlike the opposite problem where you're like, I need a MySQL driver. There isn't one. Right. Um, which, well, not with MySQL, but with other things has happened. Um, I remember many years ago trying to get Inframix to work with Perl and not having much luck, but that was probably 15 years ago. So I don't even know if Inframix exists anymore. I'm sure somebody will tweet me and tell me that it does or it doesn't. So in, besides that, I mean, you have there's a bunch of tools I've heard about, Mix and some of the others. So what are some of those tools for, for Elixir? What do they do and how does one okay. use them? Yeah, that's a good question. So... Elixir, if you go to GitHub, it's kind of structured as OTP that you go to lib and you have a bunch of applications in there. Mm-hmm. So today, as of today, we have six. So one is Elixir itself. The other one is IX, which is Interactive Elixir, and it's just a wrapper around the, the Erlang shell, right? So it's, a, it's, it's the Elixir shell, but we use the same foundation as Erlang, Erlang's shell. And that allows you to type code in Elixir. It's going to evaluate your Elixir code. Uh, we provide a bunch of specific Elixir helpers. So, for example, if you open up, if you open up uh, your shell and type h, the name h space and the name of a module, it's going to show in line the documentation for that module. So, I'm going to to do a detour here, and then I'll go back. So, for example, one of the things I would like to say is that. Uh, productivity is not only about tooling, right? There are many things that account for the overall productivity of a developer of our team in a language. Mm-hmm. And one of those things is documentation. You are not going to be productive if you are in an environment where there is basically no documentation, like the language has no documentation, the libraries that exist for that environment, there is no documentation or documentation. So in Elixir, we say that documentation is first class. We make it very easy to write documentation. We provide doc tests so you can have code in your documentation. We test that that code is actually correct. And it's very easy to access the documentation too. So that's an example of how the shell integrates with the documentation. Just type H the name of a module or H and a module and a function. And we are going to show there which we are going to show the documentation. We are going to render and show it nicely uh, if you are on Unix using the NC colors and whatnot, right? So the shell does a little bit of some extra things, but it also does the remote shell as the Erlang shell does and so on. Okay, so I talked about Elixir IX. We have something called EEX, which is basically embedded Elixir. It's just a way to embed Elixir into files. And the way we, why we use that, for example, is that I'll come back to why we use that on the EX. And then we have Mix, which is a build tool. And basically, Mix is our equivalent to Rebar, but it does much more than Rebar. So basically, after you install Elixir, you can type Mix New, and the name of our application is going to create the application for, uh, for you. And from there, you can run tests, you can compile your code, it's able to handle your dependencies, and a bunch of other stuff. And the thing about Mix is that Mix is really extensible. 
And what this means is that, for example, we have a web framework called Phoenix, and Phoenix can provide its own mix tasks to run the web server. So you can have something like mix Phoenix start, and it's going to start Phoenix. And the advantage, the advantage of that is that the whole ecosystem can be built around those tasks. Nobody need, we don't need anyone. Like we have a project that decides to provide shell scripts, right? We have another project that decides to provide a make file. No, we're able to consolidate everything through Mix. And uh, so if you depend on Phoenix in your application, all the tasks that exist within Phoenix is going to be automatically available for you. Uh, I should just point interrupt. Just want to interject here. If you're interested, if you want to know more about Phoenix, that's actually our topic for next week. So we'll. Uh, awesome. We, we won't go into it in great detail, but I would like to hear more about Mix because I've been working with playing with uh, Robert Verding's Erlog, which is a prolog that runs on the Beam, and I was trying to figure out. You know, eventually I probably want to play with some stuff so you can integrate it nicely into Elixir. And Jose, maybe at some point in the future, offline, we can t- discuss that. Awesome. I've become very interested in Prologue recently, which is all Bruce's fault because he put it in his book, and <laughs> I blame Bruce. Guilty. Uh, it's a really cool. It's Prologue's a really cool language, and one of the problems with it has been that it's very hard to get to talk to other things. So Erlog is nice because it just exists in the Erlang ecosystem as well. And actually, I have a project called uh, Erlang Server, where you, or Erlog Server, where you can take. I'm still working on it, but. But what will happen by the time I finish is you'll be able to take write a f- function a file in Erlang or in in, in Prolog, you know some some code in Prolog, give it a couple some some declarations of how you want what functions it should you know what functors it should export, and it'll compile it down to a Beam file, and then export and it'll run as a Gen server and it'll export you know whatever functions you tell it, so then you can use it just like it's a regular Erlang module right, but then internally it's running Prolog. So that's what I've been playing with. That's cool. Yeah. So the idea is that you are able to provide, you know, if you extend Mix to be able to compile Erlog code, it's just, you can just share those tasks and it's going to be available for everyone and everyone can use it. I kind of a similar idea to, to Erlang because Erlang kind of does I keep constantly coming to this idea because Erlang kind of enforces a way on how you need OTP, rather, right? On how you need to build up your applications and how those applications are configured and so on, right? And the reason this is good is because everyone goes with the same set of rules and same set of conventions, right? So if you have this application, if you have an external project and you want to run and you want to run it inside your application, everything goes with the same rules. And if you know how to configure one, you know how to configure the other because everything's go to the config file, right? So this idea in Erlang is very, very powerful, right? And then we get it and extend it to have tasks as well. So have an easy way that you can run projects and manage, proje- manage proje- projects and so on. And I think I, I talked about four. Ah, okay. And so for one of the examples we use the embedded Elixir, which I said I was going to talk later, is for mix. So when you type mix new, we generate a bunch of code for you, right? We generate a default structure. But that default structure, sometimes you want to pass a parameter, right? It's going to be the name of the main module, the name of the application. So embedded Elixir is helpful for that, where you can have like a whole string of the code or the file you want to generate, but you can you want to evaluate just a particular section of it. And then you can put the result there. 
Yeah, and the other two applications, one is XUnit, which is a test framework, and the other one is a logger, which I just merged into Elixir yesterday, is our last big feature before 1.0. And the thing about logger is that we, we got a bunch of interesting ideas from logger. That's L-A-G-E-R instead of L-O-G-G-E-R. Which is yeah, the, the, the Erlang logger or... I might pronounce that correctly. Lager, lager as in the beer is what they call exactly. it. Exactly. Yes. Uh, we got a bunch of interesting ideas from there. Uh, Andrew Thompson, he gave a nice talk at Erling Factory. And it's nice because when you look at what we're trying to do and many of the things that Basho did as a company, they are very similar. Because, And I think it's because we run into very similar issues. So, for example, take... If you watch Henry's talk uh, about Lager, one of the reasons we say that he created Lager is because people would look, they had Ryak in production, and they would look at the logs and they would say, it's saying like error report as if it were something very, very critic, right? And it spills the, the whole data structures, the last message, and people would say, wait, like, is this working correctly? Did everything just crash or, you know... What am I supposed to, to expect from it? So one of the things that they have in Lager is to make the the output really, really readable. So so you can actually get more information in, in development, but in production, it's going to discard the things that it don't really matter, right? That don't really matter for you. So so that's one comparison, right? If you look at Rebar, for example, it's was it came from Bash, and again, the same idea how it can be more productive, right? With the tooling and so on. And even we're talking about installation and so on. Today, when you're installing Elixir, you need to obviously install Erlang before. And we still link to the Basho material on installing Erlang because they have the best material for installing Erlang, basically. Right? They cover all the different platforms possible, a bunch of issues you can run into. So it's interesting because they, they have been running into those problems. Right? They're trying to get to a bunch of different uh, companies, communities, and so on, and they run into those issues. And it's very similar to what we're trying to do here, right? To reduce that activation energy so everything's much more accessible. That makes sense. Yeah, and those would be the, the six things that come with Elixir today. And is there anything else planned before 1.0, which will be out, what, uh, this coming month? That being August 2014, by the way. Yeah, so... The no, so basically, you're going to release 0.15 this weekend, and in a month for now, which would be 30, 30 August, we want to release the release candidate for 1.0. So, we are just releasing the logger now. Uh, we'll very likely have some bugs, we are going to work on them and release 1.0. Okay, and then other things will be in future versions. So, first question is actually, does Elixir work with uh, Dialyzer? Yes. It does, uh, because Dialyzer works uh, on the Erlang abstract format, and Elixir compiles to Erlang abstract format that then generates the bytecode. But basically what this means is that in the bytecode, we have the Erlang abstract format stored there, and that's what Dialyzer uses. Oh. So Elixir just works. The only issue is that sometimes because of the code generation, for example, we generate, uh, just as an example, we generate a case uh, that checks if something is a list and matches on the result of that, for example. At compile time, we don't know it, but Dialyzer knows, for example, that that thing will always be a list or it will never be a list. So sometimes you get warnings that you really can not do anything about it 
But just because the allies is too smart and it knows that because of the type spec or because of some external information, that code can never be called with a list. So sometimes you get some of uh, warnings, spurious warnings that they don't. You cannot really do anything about it, but it it just works. Yeah, we we do a lot of specs on the Elixir standard libraries. Uh, most of the code is specced. So yeah, maybe it just integrated into the compiler so that it uh. You know, as you as you compile the things that it can't call, it just cuts out. But that's probably a big project. So, yeah, yeah. Eventually, so eventually, we, we want to write to get Elixir to compile to Core Core Erlang, and that we can have more information. We can say, for example, oh, this clause was generated automatically, and then the analyzer is not going to worry about it. But the problem is that if we compile to Core, then the analyzer no longer works. So, you know. We need first to patch the analyzer so it can actually look at the types. Oh, sorry, it can actually load a core Erlang format besides the Erlang abstract tree and things like that. So it's, yeah, it's a long-term project. Sounds good. Now, so what, besides Mix, what other cool tools, maybe be they included in the Elixir package itself or not, you know, are there for Elixir that sort of make that on-ramp process significantly easier yeah so i think the whole workflow you get with mix is the main one definitely all right exactly because i said you just install and you can get started and everything compiles uh, the application that's generated generate default tasks for you so you know how to write tasks and it works so that's the is one of the main steps right besides you have very good documentation exactly because of that documentation first-class documentation aspect of the language where we focus everyone to write docs and we have tools that generate a nice website for our documentation. So if you go to elixirlang.org and you click on docs, you can see how those docs look like. And we also have good guides on the website. At this moment, we have two guides. One is the standard, like the basic guide that introduces you to the language, the basic data types and the basic modules in the standard library. And but the other one is we call mix an OTP guide that drives you to build the whole OTP application with supervision tree, you know, every, you know the things that are expected. It's, at the end, we actually build something with which is a TCP server. So we kind of build a complete application. We explore with the the reader some common issues you're going to run into, some common patterns like how you can optimize some expensive lookup with VTS and things like that. And I think that also helps with the, the ramp up. And there's something very important that I am fortunately, I was forgetting all along, which is hacks. So package manager. H-E-X? H-E-X, yes. Hex, okay. Yeah, like you would type from hexadecimal. Right. Right. So it's the package manager. And our goal is that the package manager is going to work through the whole Erlang ecosystem. Uh, right now, you can push Erlang packages, for example. You can get like uh, Poolboy, for example, it's published on Hacks. So you can publish things, but it's not very easy to consume because you need to find ways to integrate with Rebar and the different tools people use. But it's a package manager. And the way it works from LXD right now is that if you want to use a package, like want to use Phoenix, right, the web framework, you just go to your mix file, which is where you specify your mix configuration, and you add a tuple with two elements, which is basically it's going to be the, the package name, Phoenix, 
and which versions are you want to use. And you can specify a uh, requirement thing. Say like, okay, I want to use n version above 0 0.3, right? And you just type that, just a top of two elements. Go to a terminal, type mix depth get, and it's going to fetch Phoenix for you. Install it. You know, it's going to copy it inside your depths folder to your current application, and it's going to compile it. Right, so you don't need to do anything besides adding a topo and typing a command line thing. Right. And then the next time you run tests, it's going to compile Phoenix for you automatically, figure out which part of your code depends on Phoenix, and so on. And so this helps a lot with productivity, right? Because if there's something ready, if something already exists, you can use it with a little to, to no effort. From the publisher side, right, you publish your whole package there, like for you publish each version and hacks is recursive, right? So Phoenix, if Phoenix depends, for example, on the JSON library, it's going to fetch Phoenix and that JSON library. It's going to handle the whole dependency tree for you automatically. And if you have like conflicting versions, it does dependency resolution too. So it's able to find exactly which, given a set of requirements, right, which versions solve that particular problem. So yeah, that helps a lot with the getting started and productivity. What I've always wanted and rebar doesn't easily do this. I mean, you could do it with involving having two rebar config files, I guess, is being able to say, this is the stuff that, you know, this package is only required for running the, the tests, so you shouldn't include it recursively, if that makes sense. Because the place that rebar always bites me is usually the package mech, the uh, mocking framework, because everything includes it to, to do its own testing, and then, of course, everything wants different versions of it, and I'm kind of going, okay, you don't really need to include it because I don't want to run the unit tests for the sub-projects. I just want to include the code. Right. So there are a couple of interesting things that we do in Mix. So Mix has, by default, this idea of environments. So and by default, we ship with three, which is development, test, and production. And basically, is what you're saying, right? So when I'm developing, I have that specific dependencies for development, and then I have... The test environment, which is the one I run test, because I may need like if I'm using Emox, something for mocks, right? I don't I don't need it in development nor in production. So it's going to be just for tests. And the production one, which is the one you usually want to deploy your code, and uh, the one the all the dependencies you have they run on, they all run in production, right? In their production mode. So if a dependency depends on something for development, it's, you're never going to fetch that when you're using that dependency because we just worry about the production aspects. And it, it helps exactly with that. And we, we make the very specific distinction of what is your code, right? And what is third-party code. So when you run mixed test, you're just going to run your test. You're not going to go through the dependencies and run all of their tests and so on because that's third-party code. And we have something called mix umbrella, which is basically that common pattern where you have uh, like a root application and many small applications inside a directory. I think Rebar put it in apps directory. So you can have something in the apps directory and a bunch of applications in there, right? Because you don't want to build a whole monolithic application. You can just create many and put it in the apps directory. And we support exactly the same structure with one very important difference is that all those applications, they are still isolated from each other. So... In Rebar, when you have this kind of structure, they kind of inherit the parent configuration files, which means that all the applications, they are automatically coupled 
with the parent. So you can never really run, go into that particular application and try to run this test directly because it may have a bunch of configuration from the parent, from the root. But in our case, it's uh, isolated, which means if you are at the root, you have the convenience of running the tests for all applications at once. But if you want to focus and work on a particular application, you can just go into that particular application and run the test for that application, compile that particular application without having to worry uh, about the whole thing, right? So it's more of an organizational structural pattern that and maintains the isolation between the apps. You know, it's like also like I want to turn on for my own code the flag that causes it or like the compiler to treat for like warnings as errors. You know, so if you get a warning, I want it to tr break the build basically, but I don't want to do right. it for all of the things I'm depending on because chances are that it'll break on 47 things I don't want to fix because, you know, it's just... Right. Yeah, so it mix with the idea of environments. So if you check mix, it's, it's not like terms file. It's actually code. The way you specify a mix project is actually executable code, which means that you can type something like mix.env.env and you're going to get the environment and you can pattern match on that. So you can say, you know, the compiler options depend on the environment, and then you have a function that matches on the different environments and return the different options for you, right? So you can easily, very easily have that. We use that in Acto, for example, to provide, because Acto is a tool that talks to, to different databases. And basically, you know, we have tests for Postgres, we have tests for MySQL, but you may not want to run uh, all the tests for everything at once. So we provide different environments for each database. And we use that to configure which test you should run for each particular case. And it's very handy, right? Because you don't need to do a lot of contortions. Everything's there. You're going to pattern match on the environments and everything's super clear. Nice. Yeah, I need to look into this because I think I would like to, in a little bit, package some, use some of these to package our Erlog and um, to build some of the stuff I ran at. Awesome. But... Yeah, that's a little ways off. We're still, we're still playing. We're still working on it. I've been adding quick check properties and unit tests to Erlog, or tests of some form at least, just to as I learn Prolog and play with it. But that's another episode. And the thing is that we want to bring mix and hacks closer and make it easier to use for Erlang developers. We are not sure yet how exactly that's going to work though. But yeah, it's something that. We are discussing frequently at least hacks. We want to have a way that hacks can get the projects and download it to the DAP directory, for example, so it can at least, at least use it with Rebar. But it's under development, and we'll probably focus more on it after uh, 1.0 is out. So, also, so Bruce said, Bruce talked about it at the beginning, right? Like we need to converge, we need to get closer, and we hope that making the tools integrate better with the different language, it's going to be helpful, extremely helpful in this particular point. One thing I would love to see, you know, the problem is, when I won't say a problem, but, you know, when, when Elixir modules uh, get named a little differently from Erlang modules, you, it's, you know, Elixir dot whatever. So if you're trying to call an Elixir module from an Erlang module, it looks a little funny, and I, and I think vice versa, right? Having some way to... Um, automatically fix, wrap those would be nice. So we shipped with a parse transform before, but because, you know, from the Elixir, from, we have we have still like 10% of Elixir source written in Erlang, and we need to frequently do calls to the Elixir side. And I had the same problem. I was like, ah, oh, this doesn't look very nice and so on. But then what I did is that I just defined macros, 
you know, I do like define. So if I want to call uh, elixir.enum, I just define a macro named enum, which points that atom. And then to me, it's quite, got much better, right? I just now do question mark enum. And it's explicit because now I can see exactly which dependencies I have from the Alexis side. I can, if I'm using a bunch of different places, I can just put it in an include file and include it when I need it. So I'm sell, settled for, for this solution. And I think it's it's a fair compromise, right? It's not there is nothing really weird happening and it doesn't look the ugly as the the current calls do to would do if you're doing right. them without macros. That makes sense. So Elixir is mostly written in Elixir, I guess? Yeah, so yeah, so today I think uh, GitHub showed these statistics. I can even look to give a more informed. But because so because they have macros, right, we can implement a lot of the things that there would be control flow structures in other languages, they are implemented with macros in Elixir. And that's the idea, right? Like the same the same tool and the same abstractions we use to build the language, uh, they are available for developers to extend the language. And that's uh, what brings some of the, the flexibility, and that's what allows us to, to be able to write most of the language in Elixir itself. It's saying 86% Elixir, 13% Erlang, and half a percent other. Curious yeah, this other is unfortunately the bash scripts that we need to write <laughs> in order to restart Elixir and so on. Kind of figured it was something like that. There's usually a bash, a three-line bash script somewhere. Yeah, the macros are a game change. It, it just means that um, languages with them are just building with bigger blocks. And so um, one of the things that attracted both Dave and I to the language is that the pace is really incredible. And that's true because you're you're basically able to eliminate the boilerplate and and do some very low level some some very low level and very high level stuff in a way that's safe and extensible and I think that that's really one one of your overall goal goals with the language right Jose yeah exactly yeah I need to uh, unfortunately the project that I'm working on for my day job is running on Erlang sixteen something we haven't moved to seventeen yet. So I can't use Elixir for that, I guess. But there's always other stuff. But yeah, I I, I do need to um, check check this out, find a project to do with Elixir at some point, because it it sounds like you guys are getting a lot of stuff right, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I think that actually a lot of Erlang teams are going to want to be doing Elixir around the edges because. The syntax is is more natural, so that the things that they want their users to script, whether it's you know scripts that they use in language um, simpler or mixed tasks to get in and out of the application, or you know all, all the scripting types of things are just so clear and free and natural in Elixir, and the interop is very good between the languages. So um, I would expect that to be one of the first usages of most online developers. Makes sense. So for people who want to learn Elixir, what are the good resources? I mean, I say I know some of these, but let's just go over them. Obviously, there's the elixirlang.org website, which lists a bunch of them, but we have, there's what? The Pragmatic Programmers have a book. Yeah, we have, so on the website, we have links to most of those things. So uh, we have the Programming Elixir from Pragmatic Programmers. We have the Introducing Elixir, from O'Reilly, which is basically 
which is similar to the Introducing Erlang from O'Reilly 2. So Simon, who wrote Introducing Erlang, and then Alexir was starting to get uh, traction, and then he sent me an email like, hey, I'm thinking about Introducing Alexir, which is kind of the same ideas I have here, the same way of introducing the language. And those would be more if you are like, if you're not familiar with Erlang at all, or if you're not uh, really familiar with functional programming, because it goes into the basics, you know, like uh, what is pattern matching and how to think about recursion in terms of recursion and so on. And there is the Elixir in action, which focuses more on the OTP side of things, right? Uh, like fault tolerance, how you can, how the supervision trees work and things like that. And we have uh, smaller ones coming. I'm going to remember them all. Was but, Elixir and OTP? Uh, there's sorry? A, there's Elixir and OTP. It's a black cover, I guess, here. I'm looking at the yeah, the little now. book about Elixir and OTP or something like that. Yeah, yeah, the little Elixir and OTP guidebook. Yes, and there is one coming that it was just announced, which is Elixir for Rubists. So if someone is a Rubist and he wants to get to know more Elixir, uh, there will be a book coming as well. And we have other resources like Elixir Sips, which are tests. He released two short videos which week and exploring sometimes the language. It's very nice because usually when we release a new version, he explores. He does a screencast. If that's something new in that version, he explores too from the ecosystem too. There is Etudes for Elixir, which goes with the Introducing Elixir a book, but you can find it. You can get it free. You can just go and do the exercises. Yeah, so there are many resources and we link to them on the website and throughout. It's good stuff. And, you know, it seems like... I think Elixir is going to be the next language I play with after Prologue, uh, unless something else catches my interest first, which is entirely possible, I suppose. Any sort of last things we should point out? Bruce, anything? You've been mostly quiet. Anything you'd like to point out about Elixir that we haven't mentioned yet? I just think that the time is right for something like it. And the the keys to me are, it's first the, the macros and... and um, like Jose points out, that's partially extensibility and partially um, just to let you build with bigger and smaller blocks than everyone else can. Second, the natural syntax. Um, and that makes, some people say it doesn't matter much, but it makes a big difference to me. And so the cognitive cognitive jump that I need to make to, to reach the language is, is just so much smaller for me. And I think, uh, I think others... Others agree. And then the, the third is the, the things that the Erlang community already, already knows and loves. The concurrency model is just more and more we're seeing that this is the right concurrency model for the next generation. And you know, one more self-promoting plug, seven more languages is out in beta now, and it, it'll be out in production um, in about a month. Ooh, maybe pick up a copy when I'm in the States. And also it'd be nice because... I mean, we've had Simon Thompson and Kevin Hammond, who are both with the release project, who are working on, you know, how to scale up Erlang to work on sort of the 10,000 core systems that are coming down the pipe. So presumably all that work will mostly or all completely apply to Elixir. Yeah, exactly. We had Elixir Conf this last weekend, right? And yeah, I wish part I of the there. talk was about Elixir Future. And I mentioned exactly the, the release and the prowess projects because... 
pretty much everything that happens there, we can just use it, right? And that's and that's fantastic. So the scalable distributed airline, when it comes, we'll be able to to use it just fine. There's that the tool called Conquerer that I really like it, and it just works with Elixir. Uh, what else? Uh, can so you- Kevin, he was working on a project called Scale for our skeletons, like parallel skeletons. It just works too, and yeah, we can just use. Uh, the one thing that might everything. not work is Wrangler, which I'm rather fond of. Ah, yes, because, oh, that would be interesting to see. But, yeah, it's likely it's not going to work. I, it would be nice to know if it would be super hard for or not to to I, make it work. I don't know. I, I think I'm, I, I, I suggested that the solution would be to take you and Hui, Hui King, who wrote much of it, and lock you two in a room for two weeks and see what happens. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe that's not actually a practical suggestion, but... But you get the idea. So Bruce mentioned the seven more links in seven weeks. And I always like to bring this point out is that the Airline Virtual Machine was in is in all books in the in the whole seven something seven week series. So the first one, Bruce, and you helped me, seven links in seven weeks, we had Erlang, and then we had seven databases, seven weeks that had both CouchDB and Ryak. Then what was the next one? Uh, web frameworks, you had web machine. Yes, web machine, and then seven concurrency models in seven weeks. We have the actor model and Elixir is there, and we have now seven more in seven weeks, which has Elixir too. So yeah, we are always being represented, which is super nice. Bruce, any more of the seven and seven series happening you can talk about? Um, not that I can talk about. We're always um, looking for for authors, um, but so it's it's actually it's not about writing a a a hodgepodge of seven seven things. Um, it basically has to tell a story, and so the authors need to be able to write well and tell a story and see the greater, the big picture. The big picture, right? So, um, yeah, we're always looking for authors, and we're always looking for topics, but we don't have anything I'm ready to announce right now. Okay, well, if yeah, you're interested uh, in writing a book on Erlang or on Elixir. Uh, we did an episode a few months back on writing a book on Erlang, but I think pretty much all of what we said would apply to Elixir too, minus a few small details. So if you are interested in writing a book on Erlang or Elixir, uh, go listen to that episode. It'll convince, hopefully convince you to do it. Uh, at least if you like writing. If you don't like writing, don't do it. I have one more topic to wrap up. I think that it's it's an exciting time in language design right now. And one of the things that's cool is that with podcasts like these, with and Elixir Sips, with the books that are coming out, and with the pace of development, it's easy to get in, if not Elixir, into some language on the ground floor and actually be one of the forces that's actually shaping it. You know, Eric, Eric, one of the Elixir core members, is right out of college, and, and here he's um, shaping the future of one of the most important languages that's out there. Right, I think it's pretty exciting. Unfortunately, the conference that we canceled, that was would have been middle, uh, August thirteenth, it was happening at a university. It was going to happen at Ben Gurion University in Beersheba, Israel, where they've been teaching Erlang. And the idea was that a bunch of the presentations were going to be done by the students on various work, you know, schools, the, the various projects they had done, with the idea of hopefully, you know, helping them sort of get some exposure, meet people, find jobs, that kind of thing. So. We are gonna we are gonna reschedule that conference into a more poly not, not just as Erlang but more polyglot. But we have to figure out when when the university schedule will make sense. 
So we're going to be doing some more. If you're if you found this interesting and you're interested in sort of the wider Erlang ecosystem, we're going to be do, like I, said, I think I may have mentioned this earlier. We're going to be doing a bunch of episodes on that. Uh, on Elixir, various Elixir projects. On uh, we're going to talk about LFE, which is list flavored Erlang. Probably talk about some other stuff. If you know some things that sort of fit into that category, uh, be they cool Elixir projects, cool LFE projects, you know, or maybe we'll, we'll probably include early, uh, early DTL, which is the Django implementation for Erlang. Those are going to be all coming up in the near future. And if you're doing something cool on that, and you'd like to be come on the podcast, please, please drop me a line. If I don't know you exist, I won't invite you on, which doesn't mean you're not doing something cool. It just means I haven't heard about it or haven't heard enough about it to be, you know, to have noticed it's cool. So please drop me a line or, you know, Bruce, if you hear cool stuff, Bruce or Brian Hunter, any of the other sort of Francesco, any of the other regulars on the podcast will probably pass things on to me as well. But don't we be always sh- do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're doing something cool, you know, let's promote it. It doesn't have to be the next ginormous world-changing thing. It could be a small project that you just did, did because you think it's neat. If it's interesting, we'll talk about it, you know? I, I don't expect the, the stuff I've been playing around with with Erlog to suddenly change the world anytime soon or ever. I, I mean, hope some people find it neat. But I'm having fun doing it, so why not? Oh, one more question. Do, do you know if um, Elixir runs on the, the uh, Erlang on Zen uh, Ling VM? It ran at some point, but it was some time ago. I think they have interest in... So if you say, if it doesn't run, I think if we go down, like, I would like to run what is missing, uh, it should be easy. I think at the time when uh, we tried to run, it's just because Elixir was... It used some features that was not really available there. But then they implemented it, and then it ran with with little to no effort. So if it kind of went out date, I suspect that it's just something small, and it should just run. Okay, I was just curious because you know, you know, it used to be that used to be the Erlang ecosystem was Erlang the language on top of one virtual machine, but now we have Ling and Erjang as well, and LoveyScript sort of. So we got other stuff. Cool. All right, so let's call it. Let's call it a night, guys. Thank you so much. And I will see you guys. Uh, Jose, you're going to be at Code Mesh, right? Uh, unfortunately, no. Oh, bummer. I was looking forward to meeting you. Well, I'm sure we'll meet at some conference sooner or later. Yeah. Bruce, are, are you at Code Mesh this year? Uh, I usually try to make it. Um, I'll have to see how it shakes out this year, but that's, that's the plan so far. All right. Well, I'm hoping to be there as well. So um, we can, you know, get together and enjoy London. So. Also, if you're hosting a conference or an event that you would like us to announce, please please also forward us. Again, if I don't know about it, I don't mention it. Uh, I'm not a psychic. That would be scary. <laughs> All right, guys, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.